Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. Theodore Roosevelt was the 26th president of the United States. He was also a Republican leader with progressive era policies, an original conservationist and naturalist, yet a war enthusiast, often ranked as amongst the top five presidents of all time, and also admired for his larger-than-life personality. T.R. was a noted colorful figure who truly advanced progressive policy in this country. Welcome to Personology. I'm Dr. Gail Saltz, and joining me today is Aaron McCarthy, editor-in-chief of Mental Floss and host of the podcast History Versus, which just finished its first season all about Theodore Roosevelt. So I thought, who better to bring on to discuss T.R.? It's hard to come up actually with a, a leader or president who had a bigger personality, historically speaking, than Teddy Roosevelt. Very true. Born in 1858, a hometown boy. Yes, New Yorker. Woohoo! <laughs> and we do know New Yorkers do tend to have big personalities, but even amongst New Yorkers, Teddy was big. So let's talk about his early life. He had a Southern Belle mom. Yes, he did. And his uh, father was a Republican. So that led to some interesting times during the Civil War, a nation divided and a house divided. He was very into the war, you know, playing, battling war with his siblings all the time. He was the second child, but the first son. And so as soon as he was born, he kind of became the center of the family's world. And he was a sick kid. This turns out to be a very important point in terms of his character formation, which, and we know today that early chronic illness for a child really is very formative, particularly in terms of how they deal with it, Mm -hmm. how they develop coping skills and manage to manage it versus how traumatic an impact it has on their childhood. He had childhood asthma, and mm-hmm. he had pretty severe asthma at really times. Bad. yeah. He couldn't even, like, blow out a candle. Like, he was mm-hmm. really compromised, and that compromised his ability to be physically active in the way the boys usually would. Let's talk about Theodore's parents' reaction, essentially, to his asthma. Yeah, so, I mean, they were obviously an affluent family. They had means, and so he had his first asthma attack at age three, and it was really bad. You know, I mean, asthma can still be fatal today, but back then it was even more so. He would sleep sitting up. There are these stories of his father just kind of carrying him up and down the hallway, trying to get him to breathe. They would put him in the carriage and ride him at top speed up and down Broadway, trying to force air into his lungs. And then they did other things, which, you know, we look on horror with today. They made him smoke cigars. They made him drink black coffee, you know, and (laughs) TR never smoked. Um, Probably for good reason. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, introduced to cigars in childhood would be a good deterrent, I would assume. But it must have been even scarier to be doing things that were supposedly supposed to help, Mm -hmm. right? They were supposedly the medical, quote, treatment of the time and to actually not have them help at all because, of course, as we understand today, there would be nothing useful about any of these things. Mm -hmm. But his father said to him, you have to make yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to become strong in order to combat this. So even as a child, that is essentially what Theodore did. Yeah, it's really funny. His father took him to the doctor and the doctor said he's got a weak heart and not enough space in his rib cage or something. So he really needs to open that up. And so his father says to him, you know, you have the mind, but not the body. And without the body, the mind can't go as far as it should. So you have to build your body. According to Corinne, TR's sister, TR said, through gritted teeth, 
I will build my body. And then they build this gym for him on the piazza. And he's just out there like lifting weights. The neighborhood looked a lot different back then than it, than it does today. But there was a beautiful garden out in the back. So he would have been working out and listening to like mooing cows and, and uh, peacocks screaming. They make terrible noises. And so, yeah, he worked out solidly for two years. And then there's another kind of a formative experience for him. He has an asthma attack and his father sends him up to Moosehead Lake, which is, I think, in Maine. And in the coach on the way there, he runs into these two boys who are about his age. And instead of becoming friends with him, they bully him. They beat him up. He feels so ashamed by that. You know, he's like, I'm building my body. You know, he was writing down his his measurements and all the reps he was doing wow. and stuff in his diary. Early evidence of some obsessiveness, let's say. Yes. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah, that often when someone is fairly obsessional, you do see it in childhood. How old was he when that incident occurred? He was uh, in his early teens. Okay, so a very identity-forming time exactly. and unfortunately also a big bullying time Yeah, um, as we continue to see today. And we know the negative impacts of bullying, you yeah, know, really sure. uh, emotionally driving low self-esteem for, for, mm -hmm. the, for the target. But that's not what happened to him, actually. No, he actually said, I made up my mind that I must try to learn so that I would not again be put in such a helpless position. So then he took up boxing. <laughs> His coach was a prize fighter. And what they discovered is that he could really take a hit and he would just keep popping back up and hit him again and he just pop back up. So he had a sturdiness. A sturdiness, a resilience, he, yeah. That, that he demonstrated about him. And even as a boy, TR shows that, you know, he has to struggle with this asthma, but he's going to build himself. And mm -hmm. then he gets knocked down, but he gets back up. Interesting that he already at this young age, he's playing war games and he is overcoming actually his asthma in a certain kind of way. You could certainly posit the desire to have war or to have fighting as the constructed obstacle which you show your victory in, mm -hmm. essentially, would be very compelling mm -hmm. for someone who has already started doing that with his traumas as a young person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, he actually thought that war was a good thing. You know, just a little bit of war kept you in touch with your manliness and and what he called these barbarian virtues. And he sort of felt like you had to keep fighting to stay on top. And so he was really, he was really into war. How do aggressive fighters deal with those impulses and urges when they also want to be morally right or morally good? If they're shaped in a way that maybe their moral compass is eh, eh, you know, they might become criminals, actually, mm -hmm. really, and do do fighting in a way that, you know, obviously we don't approve of in society. But in his case, he's a Roosevelt, and oh, yes. he's raised by a family that maybe might makes right, but right is important. Exactly. I mean, his father, they had this glass importing business, and his father was very wealthy and was a big believer in philanthropy. So the American Museum of Natural History, his father was a part of founding the Metropolitan Museum of Art, his father was a part of founding. And then he also supported many, many charities, including the Newsboys Lodging House. And he would actually take his kids with him to these houses so they could see you know, there was like a bit of, um, I can never pronounce it, noblesse oblige at work there. And so he really believed that it was part of his role as a privileged person to help people who were less privileged than him. And his father was a proponent of, of muscular Christianity, which is basically like strong body, strong morals. And so, you know, he was constantly sort of drilling right and wrong uh, into his son. 
I think mostly for better, but also TR comes out of that with sort of a very black and white view of what's right and what's wrong and not a lot of gray area. His father took him hunting. Hunting was a big part yeah. of his upbringing. It was part of being a sportsman, but it was more than that. And and this goes on to be a very formative time for him. I mean, it actually even goes back further than that because he was so sickly as a kid that he didn't spend a ton of time outside. What he did was he sat in his house and he read, and he read a lot of books about natural history. Even before he could read, he would drag the books alongside him and beg anybody who could read to read them to him. There are these stories of him dragging along um, David Livingstone's book, which was like apparently taller than he was, just dragging it along and begging people to read the book to him, which is really cute. But, you know, so he had this obsession with nature from a very young age. And then when he is like a seven or eight years old, he goes to the market in New York, and he sees a dead seal, and it just, like, blows his mind. He needs to know everything about it. He wants to bring it back. He creates his own museum of natural history. And so this seal kind of opens up a Pandora's box where he's, like, bringing home dead things, living things. You know, he's asking the cook to boil a woodchuck so he can articulate the skeleton, and he's got a snapping turtle tied to the legs of the sink. And his parents encouraged him in this. I mean, they were very supportive. I think his mother was like, you stink, but um, otherwise (laughs) they were like, you should pursue this. This is a passion for you. A real scientific curiosity. It's kind of like a kiss through a screen door. Like, he could look, right, at these dead things, but he couldn't go out and participate He could see those things, but also not very well because he was very nearsighted, which they didn't realize until he was about a teenager. The same year, he gets glasses and a gun. The world just opened up in a way that it never had before. I'm glad he got the glasses before the gun. For sure. And so, you know, he goes out and he starts hunting and he's very into it. I asked some experts, how do we square these two things? You know, we know him as a conservation president. He cared a lot about nature, but he also went out and he shot a lot of things. And and someone said to me, that's a very 21st century attitude. (laughs) And it is because back in that day, if you wanted to understand animals, you kind of had to kill them and open them up and see what made them tick. So there was that part of it. But then there was also the big game hunting aspect where he just wanted to collect specimens of things. Let's talk about his early love life. Who? He had a childhood friend. Edith. When does friendship end and, you know, romantic longing become a thing? Mm -hmm. Somewhere along the line, it certainly seems like that was the case for for Teddy. Yeah, they had, uh, or or people posit anyway, that they had uh, sort of an, an early courtship and that he may have even proposed to her and she turned him down. They don't ever really talk about it ever. So we don't know for sure if that's what happened, but they do make reference to a fight that they had early on, but they find each other later after uh, his first marriage. It's interesting because his sophomore year, his father dies. He is just plunged into This is college now. This is college. He goes to Harvard, which is not shocking. Yeah. (laughs) He does appear to be a very bright man. And he, as you point out, he read a tremendous amount. Uh, A crazy amount, like a book a day or something. He actually had to cram in like a year and a half, according to David McCullough anyway, what normally took people three years to do. And then he took his entrance exams and he made it in. And he performed very well. He performed very, very well. And he was involved in like a million clubs while he was there too. He was in the Glee Club, but he didn't sing. He was in, you know, the pudding and the, I don't know, all the Harvard clubs that he was in. (laughs) He was also courting the ladies and, you know, taking nine classes a semester and uh, just like a super busy guy and still reading a book a day. This is some of the earlier information that we know that makes one wonder, somebody who has that big a personality, Mm -hmm. and clearly he was known on campus for having a super big personality, and as you said, super busy. 
How does this guy manage to do all that he did in the hours that there are in a day? We already have the first inklings or wonderings about whether he had some sort of mood issue that today we would call bipolar disorder. Let's take a quick break here. Be right back. So, Theodore Roosevelt has thrown himself into college and has found himself to be quite well-suited to the organized atmosphere of higher education. Between clubs, studying, exercising, socializing, and beginning to write his first book, Theo's personal schedule showed that he could pack more in a day than most people do in a week. But was there an aspect to his particular brain chemistry that aided him in this level of productivity? Bipolar disorder is usually diagnosed or presents for the first time and specifically ages 18 to 22. That is the peak. And uh, often first with a manic or hypomanic episode. What does that mean? That means the person seems expansive, sped up, talking fast, big, big, big personality. Um, It could be highly, highly irritable, but it's more often highly grandiose. I can do everything. I'm the best at everything. Uh, Something called hypergraphia, writing very quickly. Thoughts come very quickly. They're often highly creative thoughts, actually. And in fact, there's this link in bipolar disorder between people who suffer with it, but during hypomanic periods also have an inordinate number of highly creative, out-of-the-box, innovative thoughts, which is why we see such a high frequency of bipolar disorder in people in the arts in music, and actually even in leaders of new companies because they have followed a path of their creative thinking. He sounds like a lot of him fits the bill. Yeah, yeah, there are definitely people who have posited that he was uh, manic depressive and more on the manic side of that. There is a doctor who wrote a book called Exuberance, and he's basically like example number one. And basically the idea is, you know, he did have depression. Like, I feel like there's no arguing about that. He once said, black care rarely sits behind the rider whose pace is fast enough or something along those lines. Mm. And people think that black care is is depression. So, you know, his strategy, it seems, was to just keep going, going, going. Physical activity, just working himself to the bone uh, until he was exhausted and then he could, like, take a step back. He's like a pretty stocky, solid guy, mm-hmm. right? Because he's built his body. Yeah. And he's plowing through work. He's also um, getting a lot of attention from the ladies. Oh, yeah. Ladies' man. When did he meet his first wife? So he's uh, he's a sophomore in college, getting back to his father passing away. And that's really his first depression that we know of. Yeah. I mean, his his first, like, deeply felt grief. And he writes in his journal just these long journal entries talking about how he's, uh, how much he misses his father, how much he loves his father, how inferior he is to his father. He said uh, mentally and physically as well as morally or something along those lines. So there's a lot going on there. A lot of guilt, it sounds like. Oh, for sure. Or whatever shame he did feel. Well, because he was at Harvard and they kept the fact that his father was so sick from him. So he didn't make it back to New York until his, after his father had passed away. Um, so he wasn't there. That's hard. He's just like deeply in his grief, but then he goes back to Harvard and he just starts working himself, doing a million things. And he did great that year. And then that year he also met his future wife, Alice Lee. 
So she was a family friend of a friend of his from college. And so as soon as he saw her, he was like, she's my lady. Yeah, she was like 17 or something, uh, 16 or 17. And he was just like, that's going to be my wife. So he was seemingly super attracted to her. Mm -hmm. And she was socioeconomically suitable. Mm -hmm. It sounds by all accounts that he was pretty smitten. Yeah. And I mean, he threw himself into courting her. And, uh, you know, they, for a couple of years, they have a little bit of a, a back and forth sort of thing where she's like hot and then she's cold. And, and when she's cold, he doesn't write about it. But then she'll make another appearance in his in his journals. And then they get married on his birthday, actually, the year that he graduated from Harvard. But then she gets pregnant, right? Mm-hmm. She has a first child, Alice. Yes. And not that long afterwards, she dies. Yeah, just a couple of days later. And the same night that his mother dies. Yeah, it was a terrible blow. And Valentine's Day is when it happens. His mother dies first, and then his wife dies. And he writes in his diary, the light has gone out of my life with just a big X. Completely grief-stricken. Devastated, but outwardly, he's kind of dazed. He buries them in a double ceremony in Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. And then he christens his his daughter, who he leaves with his sister, Bamie. And then f- literally four days after they die... At this point, he's he's an assemblyman in the New York State Assembly. He's back in Albany, and he's, again, working. But he essentially, he abandons his daughter. He did. I mean, he left her. I mean, he was, um, after he, he finishes up his term as an assemblyman, he moves out to the Dakotas. And there's a misconception that he basically just moves out there and leaves Alice and is never back in New York. And that's not true. He's back and forth a lot. But it's clearly a very long time before he can even reference her in letters. And then once he kind of gets over that, she looked a lot like her mother. Obviously, she was named after her mother. His mechanism of coping seems to be denial. He's just like, what mother, what wife? I'm going to be a cowboy. I'm going to the Dakotas. Yeah. (laughs) So when his first wife died, when Alice died, he fully intended to not ever get married again. He was very against second marriages. Was he against second marriages in principle, or he just didn't want to open his heart up again to have it be... No, I think he was just like, I've been married and now that's it. Yeah, it was is a weird thing. And I don't know how common an attitude that was at the time. But, you know, I think he also was kind of like, I want to be devoted to my former wife's memory and I'm never going to be happy again. <laughs> and, but then Edith comes back into his life and he gets married again. And so I think there's just like guilt from all sides. You know, he feels guilty that he is quote unquote, not really, but cheating on his first wife. He feels guilty that he didn't marry Edith in the first place. And he feels guilty that Alice or that uh, Edith now has to care for his child with his first wife. So there's just like all of this, just like a maelstrom of mess. And his way of dealing with this maelstrom seems to be uh, going off. Yeah. Physically exhausting himself or putting himself into actually, well, natural surrounds, which obviously make him feel better. In mm-hmm. many ways, which again, not unusual. Uh, there, there are lots of studies today that support, you know, depression being aided by being in green and natural environments. So, mm-hmm. but he also really um, did a lot of what we would call splitting. You know, I'm not, I'm not that guy back there with uh, the second wife and the the baby who killed the first wife. And the, I'm not that. I'm, I'm this, I'm this, uh, you know, loose and free cowboy you know, bounty hunter, you know, all of these, all of these things. And I actually kind of wonder too, you know, he had this coping mechanism, um, denial. He just wouldn't talk about or write about the things that caused him pain. And that's why he ripped his wife's pictures out of his diary and scrapbooks or whatever. But I also kind of wonder if it goes back to something that his father said to him, which is weakness is a shame and often a sin. 
And if you worship your father and your father says this to you and then your father dies, maybe that gets baked into your psyche somehow where you don't want anyone to see you as weak ever. Well, if your father says that to you often enough in your youth, it's pretty baked in there anyway. On the one hand, he was really gritty, right? He was really like determined. And on the other hand, he had these more primitive ways of dealing with anything that wasn't that um, and, and really turning away. He considered one of the pinnacles of his life to be the best cocktail of being bellicose and gritty. And that was his, his charge up Kettle Hill. Oh, yes. So tell us a little bit about that time that for him was, was so important. At that point, he's assistant secretary uh, of the Navy, and he's pushing the McKinley administration to go to war with Spain. And so um, when we eventually do, he resigns his post, he joins a volunteer regiment, and he goes to Cuba with his volunteer cavalry, the Rough Riders. He wasn't initially in command, but then he was given command, and they and they get to Kettle Hill, and he's waiting for orders, waiting for orders, just like chomping at the bit. And then when the orders finally come, he like throws himself on horseback, which is so reckless, and just charges up the hill, uh, firing, and he actually uh, kills a man. And it's, you know, it's just like a wild, uh, wildly reckless thing that he does. And the things that motivated him. He he definitely did. He did many risky things. This oh, was just the first so of many. many risky things where you would say, well, not even wow. the first. You know, when he was in the Dakota territories, he was like a, a deputy sheriff or something. And, and he came home from hunting one day to discover that these bandits had stolen his boat. Uh, and it was the only boat on the Little Missouri River. You know, he was like, I'm going after these dangerous bandits. Like he said to his ranch hands, build me another boat, which, you know, if... If someone can build you another boat, you've got the boat. Why, why do you need to go after yeah. your boat? But it was it was like a moral thing for him. So they go and they capture these guys who are very dangerous guys. And then he walks them over land, like many, many miles to justice, which is, it was, I mean, and it's the badlands, like, and they are bad. <laughs> they're, they're tough. And he just was like, nope, morally I'm doing this thing, but it's such a silly risk. <laughs> Being moral is really was the beginning of his career, right? I mean, he really made it essentially politically by going after the police and mob boss guys and trying to remove people who were accepting graft and 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 doing things that were, you know, un, uh, the way things worked, a lot of the way things worked, but underground criminality, and uh, which made him uh, not well-liked amongst a lot of people. Like, reform is the thing. It's the through line through his whole political career. Everything else he did, and he did a ton of other things, but like reform was was the biggest thing that he championed. And so from his early, early days as an assemblyman, like the first 48 hours, he introduced four reform bills or something like that, you know, through his uh, time as police commissioner when he was following the letter of the law and, you know, firing police chiefs who were uh, enabling prostitution and, uh, you know, uh, enforcing the Sunday excise law, which made him very unpopular um, with many immigrants, you know, and then he achieves uh, like a national political standing after the charge up Kettle Hill. You know, he becomes this national figure. And so the Republican Party <laughs> says, let's make him governor of New York. And why they ever thought that he would be more controllable as governor of New York than he had been previously, I have no idea why. But so he was in there for a little bit, and then they were like, we need to get this guy 
out of here. So let's kick him upstairs, make him vice president. He won't, his political career will die there because, you know, the vice president just a figurehead. was just a figurehead position at that mm-hmm. time. Uh, and then McKinley is assassinated. He becomes president. And what's he do? He takes on reform. Let's pause for a break here. When we get back, we'll see how Teddy fares as the president of the United States. In 1901, newly re-elected President William McKinley was touring the fairgrounds at the Pan American Exposition when he was shot by anarchist Leon Cholgos. All of a sudden, Theodore Roosevelt found himself thrust into the presidency. In fact, as the youngest American president before or since. But he didn't let his relative youth stop him from exerting his will on the country. He becomes the trust buster, basically. Standard Oil, but essentially all trust at at that point. Obviously, one of his, the most important things that he did as president, very morally driven, but also very, like, taking on corruption, fat cats, the big bully. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite stories is he reads Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, which obviously uh, was a horrifying novel, but based on truth uh, about the meatpacking industry in Chicago. And so he says, I'm going to investigate this. He finds out that it's worse than what Upton Sinclair had put in the book. And so he goes to the Beef Trust and says, well, what are you going to do? And the Beef Trust says, nothing. And so he commissions a report. And when the Beef Trust makes no changes, he releases the report. And that causes such an uproar that it helps to get the Pure Food and Drug Act passed. He's smart in his in his way of approaching this. He was Close to his children, he oh, very close he was to them, a yeah. very, by all external views, a good, a really good father, very mm-hmm. involved. While in the White House, the the kids were there. It was like a they played. Oh, and they had a million pets too, which is crazy. They had like a one legged rooster, a hyena named Bill. They had, uh, yeah, I mean, he was getting these these animals as gifts from. I don't know about the rooster, but the hyena came from a dignitary of some of some nation, and and he kept it for a, for a while um, before they moved into the White House. They had a bear named John. Jonathan Edwards, which is my absolute oh my favorite story. And they would walk it with a club because I guess it was hard to control. <laughs> I guess that would make you feel pretty powerful if you had a pet bear that you yeah. could club at any moment. Yeah, but- they they ended up giving it to the Bronx Zoo. And after they gave it away, he said the whole household breathed a sigh of relief. And the other theme that really he demonstrates in his presidency is he loves it. I mean, he delights in I'd say two kind of different aspects. Yes, there's the grandiose, um, oh my gosh, I, you know, I'm the president, I'm the biggest, I'm in the White House. And there's, of course, this do-right, you know, be the do-right guy. But there's being a father figure. And, you know, that obviously is something given what has what happened with his father um, and the kind of father that he wanted to be. But then he essentially abandons his first daughter. But here he can be the father of our country. And he really relishes that. Oh, he loves it. He loves being president so much so that, so he could have sought re-election for a third term. But early on uh, in his second term, he said, I'm not going to do that. In a way, it seems so surprising. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was basically like, people will be sick of me by the time this is this. And so at the end of his presidency, he was like, nope, I'm done. He then became this kind of like bitter 
angry guy who was no longer the one in power and didn't think that any of the people in power were making the decisions that they should be making. He becomes somewhat depressed during this this post-presidential time. People who are were like, well, how could he really have bipolar disorder? I mean, he didn't have that much depression. He just seemed, you know, mostly high-functioning and, like, exuberant all the time. But actually, 15% of people with bipolar disorder have very little depression, stay mostly hypomanic. So there is a subset that look not unlike, I mean, they're not as successful necessarily or as brilliant in some ways as, as Teddy Roosevelt. But another thing that is important to note is that bipolar disorder has a genetic component and it, it does tend to run in families or at least the mood disorder runs in the family. And he had a brother who committed suicide. We know he had a son who committed suicide. And we know that his mother, besides being a lovely Southern belle and very maternal, was also quite exuberant, had periods that look like they may have been hypomania. Mm -hmm. And she also had a fair bit of, um, the historian Kathleen Dalton calls it uh, invalidism. Invalidism. Oh, yes. So she was very (laughs) hypochondriacal. And Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. she was always going to health resorts to take the waters. And sometimes she took TR with her, which she apparently hated. There does seem to be a good deal of family history But he didn't often suffer from depression, but this post-presidential period was a difficult one for him. He felt helpless to do the things that he really wanted to, and his sort of idea of resurrecting himself had a lot to do, again, with war. Like, how can I get somebody to have a war? Yeah. (laughs) That seemed really important. He continues to hold out hope of there being another war, another Kettle Hill for him. I mean, he was so, so, so angry that Wilson did not get into World War I more quickly. He literally goes to Wilson. Yeah. He went to Wilson and said, send me. When, when we finally got into it, which I think was like 1917, he went to Wilson and said, send me. Like, let me get a, a regiment together and I'll go. Wilson was like, war's a little different these days. Like, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think it would go as well for you. Well, this is pretty crushing for him. Mm-hmm. He deals with this by really supporting and encouraging his sons going. They should all go to war. Yep. And by identification, he feels really good about this. Yeah. One of his sons actually said, we knew how badly he wanted to go, and he couldn't, so we all signed up for him. In pushing that at that level, his sons also do some risk-taking. And in fact, Quentin is really not equipped to be a pilot. It, it Actually, he has poor vision himself. He shouldn't have been able to pass the eye test to even go fly. But he is given that opportunity. He doesn't follow direction very well. He doesn't fly very well. So a very risky proposition for Quentin. Mm-hmm. And it did not end well for him, unfortunately. He was, much like his father, a pretty dogged and stubborn person. And, you know, he engaged these people and didn't fall back, wouldn't give up. And um, he paid the ultimate price for that. And unlike the reaction or the way sort of he managed his own risk-taking, obviously this, you know, his son died. But he, here we see a man who maybe no longer has the physical power and prowess to do what he's done his whole life in terms of maintaining his self-image. And his son, who he hoped would sort of take his place and provide that kind of feeling for him, is killed. And he's somewhat feels responsible in having pushed him to do it in a way perhaps that wasn't even the safest way to do it. 
he writes about it a little bit, you know, publicly. He's not grieving. You know, he's he's like, my son was an eagle and, you know, he did what eagles do. And, you know, he sacrificed himself to the glory of war and like yada, yada, yada. But but privately, he was devastated. Um, you know, he would go and cry into Quentin's pony's mane. And, and, you know, he wrote to people about how horrible it was and how the world had closed down upon him. And I think at one point someone in France asked him to come visit and he said, I have nothing or just to send a letter with some uplifting words. And he said, I have nothing to say to France. I've already given my best to her because Quentin was shot down uh, over the skies of France. Teddy really didn't recover from this. No, he died himself six months later. There is data to support that people can really die of a broken heart. I mean, truly, that if one stays deeply in grief and the grief is such a shock to the system that those high cortisol levels really impact one's cardiovascular system. You can develop a cardiomyopathy and essentially really die of a broken heart. And it does sound like that is kind of what happened to TR. And, you know, his his typical coping mechanism that he had had, which was to work at whatever job he was doing like a crazy person and then go out to nature, he didn't really have that anymore because he didn't, I mean, he was writing a lot. But, you know, I don't really think that, that that gave him sort of the outlet that he needed. So after Quentin died, they did go to Maine and, and he would row out onto the lake and just watch the animals. But it didn't quite work for him in the way that it had. He could no longer remake his body. The physical activity was not an option for him anymore. And he couldn't do this high-risk disappearance to another continent to sort of deny what is going on and pretend he was a young cowboy again, essentially. Yeah. And so in his last few months alive, he's still keeping busy. You know, he's 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 writing many, many editorials for various publications. But in December of 1918, he goes in for surgery on his legs. He comes home for Christmas. He's home for a little bit. And then he dies in, in his sleep of a pulmonary embolism, I believe. People would say afterwards that, you know, I mean, it is totally not the way that he would have preferred or even imagined himself going out, right? Like he he most definitely would have preferred going out in war in some way. But he dies in his sleep and people say that death had to come for him in his sleep because otherwise he would have put up a fight, which is probably true. But, you know, the whole world is shocked because they had been talking about him running again in 1920. Well, he wasn't an old man. He was he was 60. It wouldn't have been shocking for him to try again. Not clear whether with all the physical ailments that he'd had, you know, that how plausible that would have been. I mean, he really changed our world, right? He was one of the better presidents. He changed the world of conservation. He changed the world of trusts. He changed the world of corruption, right, in, in a certain kind of way. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people say that he was the first modern president. And I think a lot of that is because the technology at the time was rapidly changing, but also just the way that he thought about his image was very modern. Before he went out to the Dakotas, he had this buckskin suit made for himself, which is really funny because people in the Dakotas didn't wear that a lot. But that was his vision of what a cowboy looked like. And so he wanted that. And um, he got a photo of himself taken of it. And in, in the photo, it looks like he's in the in the forest, but he's actually in a photo studio in New York City. He sent it to people. So he's, you know, these days we, we say people do it for the gram. Like he was, he was doing it for the gram way before Instagram was ever a thing. He had a concept about PR and branding before PR and branding were a thing and how that could aid you in presidency and aid you in policy and how important that was. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, for all his positive attributes, he also had some some not so great ones. You know, he had a fair a fair bit of uh, righteousness. 
Unfortunately, he held some white supremacist viewpoints, um, which is a bummer. I've just been grappling with that and making in making the podcast, and it's been fascinating to learn about those sides of him as well. In a way, surprising and tragic because he was this moral, righteous person, and he was able to foresee things that culturally of the time were a step away from others. So, you know, in terms of monopolies and 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 trusts and corruption and so on, that he he saw morally what was right. So somewhat surprising and sad that he couldn't take his intelligence and moral stance, as it were, do the right thing. In his presidency, there was a huge uptick in violence against African-Americans. And, you know, he was against segregation. He did not believe in limiting voting rights. He spoke out against lynching, but politically, he did very little to help anyone. He did forge a relationship with Booker T. Washington and actually invited him to have dinner at the White House, which caused a huge controversy. And they had a working relationship. But in terms of policy, he didn't do very much to help. That's a sad note. I know, that's but a bummer note. <laughs> that's a bummer note. <laughs> he did a lot of good things, but not everything. But on that sad note, I think we'll say goodbye to TR. Well, that wraps things up for this episode. A huge thanks to Erin McCarthy for joining me today. You should absolutely check out her podcast, History Verses, to learn more about the incredible life of Theodore Roosevelt. There really is more that we didn't get to cover in this episode. Also, if you're interested in more information about the people we discussed today, you can check out my book, The Power of Different. And make sure to follow me on Twitter at Dr. Gail Saltz or at PersonologyMD to follow along with all the latest news about the show. Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Dr. Gail Saltz and Tyler Klang. The supervising producer is Dylan Fagan. The associate producer is Lowell Berlanti. Editing, music, and mixing by Lowell Berlanti. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.